I know if you've heard of the movie The Big Kahuna, it uh, stars uh, Danny DeVito and Kevin Spacey, and um, there are three salesmen who are trying to close this deal with The Big Kahuna, the, the CEO, and it's all happening at this hotel convention, and uh, Larry, Kevin Spacey, and Phil, Danny DeVito, are having this conversation about God late one night in the hotel room. Phil says, I don't know why, but I've always had this haunting feeling that I had some kind of mission here on earth. Mission? What kind of mission, Larry asked. Well, I have no idea. Well, I'll tell you what your mission is, Larry said. Your mission is the same as my mission. We're to be a liaison between parties. We need to close the deal. Well, things like that don't bother you, huh? Well, what do you mean, asked Larry. Dreams? No, questions about God, Phil answers. Well, I figure we'll find out sooner or later. My wondering about it ain't going to change anything. In the meantime, why lose sleep? I got precious little of it as it is. But you still wonder, don't you, Larry? Yeah, Phil, I wonder. I'm only human. My name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to just ask you, have you ever wondered about God, who he is? what he's like. You ever wonder if he exists? We're starting a new series called Questioning Christianity. It's our first question that we're going to consider today. And in the following weeks, a lot of other important questions that we think often become hurdles and barriers and obstacles to somebody really considering the claims of Christ and becoming a Christ follower. Barriers to faith, if you will. Some of the questions that we'll be dealing with next week, is the Bible reliable? Can I trust it? How could a good God who's all-powerful allow for evil and suffering and injustice? Why are Christians so intolerant? If God is love, why would he send somebody, anyone, to hell? How can Jesus be the only way? Doesn't science disprove the Bible? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Can I have doubts and still believe? And as we get close to Christmas, can you really believe in miracles like the virgin birth? Now, if you're here for the first time or just new to Door Creek, let me just suggest that we're not going to trivialize these questions or demean anyone who has this kind of a question, whatever it is. We're not going to assume that there's easy answers to these questions, and we're not going to build strawmen and take shots at it. And we're not going to have a conversation as if everybody here believes the same things. We're going to hopefully humbly share what we believe and why. We don't want to argue about these things. We want to present evidence for these things in in a dialogue, a conversation, not in a debate. For some of you who follow Christ, Maybe you'll feel a little bit like you're listening in to a conversation. That's okay. And I hope what comes out of it is maybe a way to have conversations. You know, in our day, there's this increasing polarization between people who are religious and people who aren't. It's easy to talk past each other. It's easy to throw grenades at each other. It's easy to denounce each other, to castigate each other. But maybe you... We'll find some clues on how to have a conversation, a meaningful one, with people who have these kinds of questions, people that you know. And as you hear the the conversations in the weeks to come, hopefully a sense that your faith is growing stronger as you see there are good reasons to believe. 
And also as you wrestle with maybe doubts that you have or have had that you never really got good answers for. Maybe your faith will be strengthened in a number of different ways. And for those of you filled with doubts, on the continuum from a convinced atheist to an unsure agnostic, not sure, to a person who's maybe believing but not sure about what you're believing, that I hope you'll grant me this, that all doubts are based in some measure on a step or a leap of faith. Let me illustrate that. I I can't prove to you today the existence of God. If you came here looking for that, I I can't put God in a test tube. I can't use the scientific method and demonstrate and prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that God exists. And it may surprise you that the Bible agrees with that wholeheartedly. It says you can't prove God's existence. You need to believe God's existence. So in this classic passage, it talks about the nature of faith. Hebrews 11 says this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, not must know that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if you're following me, just as I cannot prove the existence of God, let me suggest to you, you cannot prove God's non-existence, that he doesn't exist. You cannot say, I don't think, that you have all knowledge, and that you've traveled to all places of this grand universe, you've checked it out. You can't do what the Soviet cosmonaut said in 1961. You remember that? Yuri Gagarin. What did he say? He said, I don't see any God up here. I've orbited the heavens, the, the, the earth here, and I haven't seen God. So I think we have to say at the end of the day, we don't want to draw up these two camps. One that says... I'm of the faith camp. And the other says, well, I'm of the facts camp. I mean, listen to uh, this very influential atheist of the day, biologist Richard Dawkins, a critic of organized religion. But he himself admits in his book, The God Delusion, that he can't be 100% sure that God doesn't exist. He says on a scale of one to seven, where one is, I'm sure that God exists, and seven is, I'm sure he doesn't, he rates himself a six. I cannot, I'm quoting here, I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable, and I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. That's an interesting point that actually atheists and theists have in common, that we believe that what we believe matters in how we live our life. And so those who believe in a God would believe that he's a creator, God who created us, and that has some bearing and weight in our life and how we live our life, that that brings meaning on how we live our life and helps answers the big eternal questions of why am I here, where am I going, how do you make sense of this world that we live in? In the same way, an atheist would say, this world started from nothing. It's, there's no meaning in this universe. There's no order in this universe. And therefore, life does not have meaning. So here's a classic quote from Bertrand Russell. 
who once said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. In other words, the question of meaning is a meaningless question unless you assume that there is a God. And so the question's meaningless. And of course, life itself is void of true meaning. And so what I'm suggesting here is that our conversation is not between two camps of the faith camp and the facts camp, but that we both base our view of this world and life in some measure upon a belief system. Now, by this point, you ought to be getting really uncomfortable if you're an atheist. You're going, wait a minute. You just lumped me in what I would call a religious camp. I'm not religious. I'm a facts kind of guy or I'm a facts kind of woman. And don't lump me with the religious kooks out there. So let me let a guy who's a pretty smart guy, double PhD in molecular biology and natural theology, Alistair McGrath, beg you that position. And he says this. If you say, no, it's the facts for me, not faith, let's think it through. You say, there's no God, right? Yeah. I say, can you prove that? You say, it's obvious or whatever. I ask you to show me what is so obvious to you that makes you believe that there is no God. You say, well, I can't really do that, but it's the best option I have. So McGrath says, so what you're saying is not different from a theist who says, I can't prove God exists, but I believe it's the best explanation of our world and how it works, correct? So then we both are stating something we believe in. Okay, so I hope you will give me that point as we enter in this dialogue. And so now I just want you to, to just mull over. So what is it you believe about God? And, and why? And as you hear these uh, on-the-street interviews that Kyle had a few days ago, maybe some of these questions and how you answer it will be running through your mind as well. Take a listen. So we are we're down here on State Street, and we're going to be asking some different questions about explaining Christianity. Everybody's got different questions about our faith and God more than that, everybody has an idea or an opinion about it. So we're going to be asking some different questions today, and uh, it'll be interesting to see some of the feedback we get. Do you believe there's a God? No. You don't? Okay. All right. Alex, do you believe that there's a God? I do believe there's a God. I'm not going to like my answer. All right, Brock, do you, do you believe there's a God? Um, I, I kind of subscribe to the idea that I don't really know what's out there. Uh, my name's Rochelle. I also believe in a God. Do you believe there's a, there's a God? Oh, yes, of course, absolutely. But I tend not to believe that any religion is completely right in it. Justin, do you believe that there's a God? Yeah. I... I I have trouble with Christian God generally, and then I don't really know how other religions view God as well, so I can't, but I was raised Catholic, so. Okay. Christianity has like the one God, but there's so many, there's thousands of different religions that have um, thousands of different beliefs, and some, some religions have 4,000 different gods. I called you, do you believe there's a, there's a God? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Shannon, do you, do you believe there's a God? I believe there's a God, yes. Okay.
how do you know that to be true? Uh, just from my own life experiences and my uh, prayers. Okay. How would you? How would somebody believe it to? You know, believe that to be false. You know. Yeah. You can show me proof. I'll show you. Okay. So saying nobody knows. No, there's okay. nothing. No, and then until something happens to me, something, some proof, there's I, I can't do it. Okay. Uh, just uh, I grew up in church and. Uh, learning about him. And um, I believe that just because of my faith. And I'm in the same situation. We don't attend church regularly, but my family also believes it. How do you know that that to be true? Well, it's the fact that I can't know it to be true or know it to be false. And so I just don't question it. I take reality as it is and everything that can be proven and replicated. It's uh, kind of how I go. How do you know that to be true? Um, I would say just because um, if there's ever, if I ever feel like, you know, I'm all alone and like nobody understands what I'm going through, you know, I can pray, you know, I don't go to church every week, but I still, you know, know that I have that connection there. If you're um, an atheist or an agnostic, I, I can understand a lot of reasons why that might be true. Um, what, what did the young man say? And, and, and unless it can be replicated and proven, I, I'm not buying it. And you haven't seen proofs for the existence of God. Or maybe it's not just objective proofs, but actually, actually it's a more of a subjective thing where you grew up in a home, in a faith system where there was a God, but really, you never had that experience that that one young woman was speaking about of knowing that when you're all alone that someone was there. You, you actually never had that. And all of a sudden, you, you got to the understanding that the reason I never felt God and experienced God is because he doesn't exist. And, and I understand that for a lot of you, it's, it's this whole problem of evil and suffering. And how do you make sense of a world that has injustice and has these awful things happening and have happened over the centuries and, and how do you bring that together with a God who exists and supposedly is all-powerful and, and all-good? And, and what about all the atrocious things that have been done in the name of God? And, and by the way, some of you know a lot of people that call themselves believers in God, and you look at their life, and man, it doesn't look any better than yours. And then there's what the young woman said about all these different religions and all these... Di- there's a lot of reasons. I understand it. There's a lot of reasons. What I'd like to do today is not put together a bunch of proofs and argue for God's existence. What I want to do is present a couple of clues, really two clues. One clue is going to be in two parts. It's all about creation. And the second is about our conscience. One's more objective. One's a little bit more subjective. And what I'd like to do in presenting these clues is just present them in such a way to see if the belief system that has God at the center or the belief system that has no God better squares with the world that you and I live in. Okay, so that's going to be our tack here today. So the first clue, creation. The two points, one has to do with the cause of creation and the other, the design and order of creation. Now, the Bible says there's actually a connection between creation and God. Now, before you accuse me of circular reasoning, I'm not using the Bible 
to prove God's existence. I'm just saying this, that the Bible says there actually is a connection between creation and God. So there's two verses I'd point out. First in Psalm, the 19th Psalm, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Okay, they're, they're pointing to a God, to his handiwork, to his majesty, his glory. The second is in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How so? Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So we have to come up with an explanation of how this world began. And I'm going to simplify it down to three things. I'm sure there's more variations, but I think this can kind of wrap it up in a pretty good summary fashion. There's a philosophical argument that says, actually, this world doesn't exist. It's just a figment of your imagination. Don't even worry about how it all got here because it's not here. Now, I know you don't believe that because I watched you come in today and all of you used the doors, that you really thought that wall and that glass existed. If you hit it, it was going to hurt. So we're not going to spend a lot of time with that philosophical uh, approach to the non-existence of matter in this world, even you and me. Now, there's a second approach. We can say the universe has always existed. And so we can say what lies Behind and beyond the Big Bang is eternal matter. It's always been there. Or we can say, the third option is, that there's been something apart from creation, a self-existent being, you can call him God, it's not necessarily the God of the Bible, but there is this independent, eternal, apart from creation, supernatural being that caused this material world to come into existence. That's the way to answer how did this world begin? What lies behind and beyond the Big Bang? And here's what scientists tell us about our world. It uses this word. It says this world is contingent. That means that nothing exists in and of itself. There's always causes outside of ourselves that we're dependent upon for our existence. So if anybody would ask us the philosophical question, why do you exist? We can't say, well, because we've always existed. Because we know we haven't always existed. Our existence has a cause. It's our mother and father that gave us life, our mother that brought us into this world. When we go out to the parking lot, hopefully this doesn't happen, but if it did, and you see all of a sudden in your car there's a new dent. Please don't think it happened here in the parking lot. I'm sure it happened yesterday at the, at the mall. But you're going to ask yourself, how, who, what caused the dent? When I'm eating a sandwich, munching on a great baguette, some good Italian cheese yesterday at the farmer's market, and all of a sudden there was a bang. And my head turned, and I noticed a lot of heads turned because I wanted to know what caused the bang. Was it one of those balloons that they're handing off down at the kid's store, or does somebody have a gun on the square? That, that, that's how life works. And this clue is asking us to wrestle with how did it all begin? Now, astrophysicists are very sure and confident that 15 to 20 billion years ago, it all started with a great big bang. And what we're asking is, what caused the big bang? And I think we're left basically with two fundamental options. There's eternal matter or there's an eternal being. That's the first part of the creation clue. The second one has to do with the design or order of creation. 
For some people, they look at creation as you're looking at the beauties of this fall landscape. You go, wow, look at the fingerprints of God. Other people go, fingerprints of God? What are you talking about? It's just the facts of the universe. It's just how it is. Stephen Hawking, the renowned physicist, said, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. And I read all kinds of statistics about these odds, but here's one from Donald Page, the Princeton Institute for Advanced Science. He says it's 10 billion to the 124th power to one. That's how huge the odds are. I I can't even measure that. I don't know what it is. It's astronomical. Hawking's, again, going back to his quote, I think there are clearly religious implications. He also said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. And so this clue then starts talking about and looking at this world that we live in, the vastness of it. I mean, to remember that just within the Big Dipper itself, there's a million galaxies Galaxies like our own. Just a million, just that little part of the sky. The the furthest point that we know of right now is 18 billion light years away. Just to kind of get your mind around it, that's traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second for 18 billion years. Whoa, dog, that's big. In the midst of the bigness and the vastness, the hugeness of this universe You have the intricacies and the design and the order and the regularity of this creation. And then you have this this dynamic that Paul Davis has coined, the Goldilocks enigma. Remember Goldilocks? She goes to the first bowl, it's too hot. She goes to the second bowl, it's too cold. But that second, third bowl was just right. And there, there are scientists that talk about the just rightness Sometimes it's called the privileged planet. That we're not too close to the sun or we'd fry or too far or we'd freeze. It's just amazingly just right how this world and this earth is, is positioned here in our universe. Now, the strength of the creation clue, whether it's getting to the cause behind and beyond the Big Bang or however you think this world came into existence, or whether it's looking at the order and beauty, the strength of it is that it makes sense in terms of the world that we live in and experience every day. In our world, order doesn't come out of chaos. We expect, if we hear the news like we did a few years ago of a tornado, that when we see the pictures, we see the debris of houses and and trees uprooted and cars thrown around and, and just a scattered mess of things. We would be amazed if we ever heard the report that this tornado went through a junkyard and in the wake of it, there is a 747. It's assembled and ready to fly. We go, no way. It just doesn't happen. It's as simple as looking at our kids' rooms. Order doesn't come out of chaos. When things are left alone, what we know in life is it deteriorates. Whether it's our kids' room or our room, whether it's our garden, our cars, our bodies, our marriages, our friendships, when things are left alone, our experiences, they deteriorate. They don't get better. They don't improve. It also jives with how we live life. You know, at the end of the day, we're left with either saying, this world started by chance. It's random. 
there isn't any meaning here. Don't look for it. Or to say, there actually is a designer. There is a God who's behind it. And I would suggest to you to think about, if you believe and have a secular view of the world that says there is no God, is that really how you live your life? Like everything's chance and everything's random. I don't think that's how you got dressed this morning. I believe you probably turned the light on and you picked out things that you thought, you know, go together. And if you're like me, sometimes you double check with your wife to make sure that you were right. It's not how we ate our meal this morning. It's not how we drive our cars. It's not how we interpret what's going on, even the changing of colors around us or the fact that the temperature's getting colder at night. We, we expect these things. We do not live our lives in a way that we say this world is wound up, pure chance, random, meaningless. We look at our bodies. We look at the delicate balance of our universe, and we see these things to be true. So there's a strength to it. It rings true to our experience. But the weakness is it still doesn't prove God's existence. And the truth is, even in an ordered world, we have to say there's a lot of things that don't seem like there's order to it. And this whole matter of an eternal God who exists outside of creation has always existed. And just the thought of eternal, just, whoa, whoa, I'm just short-circuiting my little finite brain. I can't put my mind around it. But I would say anything eternal, God or matter, will bring us to that same, whoa, this is short-circuiting my brain right now. So that brings us to the second clue. The second clue is this whole matter of conscience. We're, we're moving from observing the natural world around us to now observing some things within us. I want to talk to you about your conscience. Now, I, let me use this illustration that comes from this week. Um, in, in recent days, we, we heard about a, a lot of financial trouble. One of the early ones was AIG, this insurance company. And remember what happened. The government, that is you and I, U.S. taxpayers, bailed out AIG, do you remember, to the tune of $85 billion. That's a lot of money. And then we heard this last week, within a few days of the bailout, the executives for this company took a retreat to this great resort on the beach there in California, and they were getting their pedicures and their massage and playing golf and these great dinners to the tune of, did you hear it? $443,000. We're talking about a half a million dollars. What was your reaction? I know what mine was. It was like, this is an outrage. This is nuts. So the guys that run this company into the ground are rewarded with a little convention at the seaside where they could do what they want with a half a million dollars. But here's the rub, and here's the question. On what basis can we say they were wrong to do that? Why is that wrong? Why is anything wrong? Yale law professor Arthur Leff puts it this way, either God exists or he does not. But if he does nothing and no one, but if he does not, nothing and no one else can take his place. So I just messed it up. Let me say it again so you get it right. Either God exists or he does not. But if he does not, nothing and no one else can take his place. Now, atheists, as they wrestle with this whole thing of conscience, this sense of moral right or wrong, says, well, that's just cultural. In fact, Dawkins has coined this phrase. Well, it's not a phrase. It's a word. 
It's a dynamic. He says, just as there are genes that pass through our, our bodies and, and our genealogies, the DNA of life, there's these things called memes, M-E-M-E-S. And these are like these, these cultural markers that pass along. And actually, they're the things that help us survive as, as a race. Well, he can't show us one of those memes in the same way that a scientist can show us the stuff of chromosomes and genes and the molecular DNA of the human body and of life. But that's where they argue. Now, practically speaking, we hear it all the time. Someone will say, look, I, you know, I'm not going to force my morality on you. Don't you force my morality on me. At the end of the day, here's what I think we should all agree to. You can do whatever you want as long as it what? Doesn't hurt me. And so we look at the AIG thing and we go, well, certainly that hurts us. It hurts us economically, but it hurts us in terms of any kind of respect and trust and leadership of all kinds of institutions, not the least those who have been bailed out. So we could say, all right, that's why we wouldn't hold to these things because uh, this is wrong because this isn't good. They're hurting me. But now we've got to ask the idea, now where do we get that idea from? Where do we get the idea that something's wrong when it hurts us? And what happens if somebody says, what's good for me is hurting you, but I I get it because it is good for me. I don't care. So we're wrestling with these things. We don't have any problem saying that it's wrong for a strong human being to take advantage of a weaker one. We don't have any problem saying what happened in Nazi Germany is wrong. What happened under Stalin's atheist to communist regime was wrong. We don't have anything saying what happened in Rwanda or Darfur, wherever there's genocide or human trafficking or slavery. We don't have any problems with that. That's wrong. But at the same time, we don't have problems when we look at the animals and see violence within their existence, say, well, that's just normal. So when the coyotes are howling in the midnight moon over their new feast, we understand that's how it goes. That's survival of the fittest. Well, why is it okay in one domain and why is it wrong in the other? I think this clue maybe is suggesting this. Maybe it's wrong because there's a reference point. There is a God who tells us what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what's just and what's unjust. And if we're created in His image, as the Bible says, maybe that's why there's something, a moral obligation that transcends culture where we know that's right and that's wrong. I like how my friend Chris Dolson put it. Chris is the pastor over at Blackhawk our sister church on the west side, he said, if there is no God, then there's no difference between an anthill and Athens. He says, if there's no God, there's no difference between a little girl and a little squirrel. But the truth is, you actually know that's not true. You know there's a huge difference. As awful as it is to hear your tires run over a little squirrel, I guarantee you, It's a huge difference, and you know it. God forbid that we would ever run over a little girl. Why is it? Not just because we have this sense of right or wrong. We we actually have this sense that that little girl 
is even more special. How do we say that? Does he have the fingerprint of God? I don't know if we'd even say that, but we know in our heart of hearts they're not the same thing. And so the strength of this clue is it resonates with your heart, with our hearts, with an inner sense of right or wrong. The weakness, though, is how do we make sense of evil and suffering? It's question three, question in two weeks. How do we make sense then? of all that's not right in this world, if there is a God who's all good and all powerful. Let me end end this clue with these words from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, an excellent, in a sense, response to Dawkins' The God Delusion. He says this, If the world was made by a God of peace, justice, and love, then that is why we know that violence, oppression, and hate are wrong. If the world is fallen, broken, and needs to be redeemed, That explains the violence and disorder we see. If you believe human rights are a reality, that it makes much more sense that God exists than that he does not. If you insist on a secular view of the world and yet continue to pronounce some things right and some things wrong, then I hope you see the deep disharmony between the world your intellect has devised and the real world and God that your heart knows exists. This leads to a crucial question. If a premise, there is no God, leads to a conclusion you know is not true, like napalming babies is culturally relative, then why not change the premise? So two clues for you to consider the possibility of there being a God. And so if we're having this conversation over coffee at Cool Beans this week, I'd want to just say one other thing. I would want to just talk about the objective um, signs of God, the clues maybe there in creation or the subjective sense of our conscience. But I'd want to just talk to you about my experience with God. For me, it all goes back to the kitchen sink in the home I grew up. It's not where I met God, but I would say I was first introduced to God. My mom, we called her Moody. It's Swiss German for mom. Moody would be hanging out in the kitchen. I loved to just be out in the kitchen with her. And sometimes when I wasn't in the kitchen, I'd hear her talking. I'd wonder, who in the world is she talking to? And I'd go in and say, Moody, who are you talking to? And she'd say to me, oh, I'm just talking to the Lord. And, and I didn't know God in a personal way that, but I knew my mom was talking to God. I knew she wasn't nuts. I knew she had a right mind on her. And I was fascinated and introduced to God at the kitchen sink. And then within a short period of time, I must have been five or six, I came to know God personally through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And as a young boy, I can tell you that that relationship, my relationship with God, was as real as any and every relationship that I had in my life. And I sensed his uh, leading in my life. I can tell you, in a special way in junior high, and if you knew me in junior high, uh, you've heard me say it before, some of you, the last thing you would have said as you looked at Mark was, this guy's heading for, he's going to be a minister. You're thinking, this guy's heading for the juvenile home. And, and God was there in my life in the midst of some really hard things where I was wrestling with identity and trying to win my peers' approval. God was there. And he graciously was patient and loving and forgiving and calling me back to himself. And in a, I mean, I didn't hear a voice. I, I didn't get a letter that was signed by God. But I was convinced God was leading me at that time in my life and saying, I want you to be a pastor at 13 years of age. 
And his leading continued in all kinds of ways. His leading, allowing me to marry my wonderful wife, Lori. We've been married for 27 years. And here's what I can tell you about those last 27 years. That my faith in God has strengthened, especially through the hard times. I mean, think about this. If you've built a bridge, the bridge isn't tested by you walking across it. The bridge's strength is tested by a freight train going over it. And it's in the hard times of life where your belief system gets tested. Is this true? Well, I can tell you, it's just like most of you here. You don't have to live life very long to know it's hard. We've been through the hard stuff. We've lost a child six months along in the pregnancy. Lori's been through breast cancer, and there's been a lot of other hard things, and God's been there. But I want to be honest with you. I had a really bad dream at 1 o'clock this morning, a bad dream. And it just reminded me that there are things that could happen to me and to those I love that would cause me huge questions about God. I want you to know that. But I want you to know I've had an experience with this God. And if you are like Dawkins, honest enough to say, not seven, but six out of seven, I'd say, are you 100% sure that he doesn't exist? And if there's just a little bit of an opening, I'd want to say this. Are you sure you understand who this God is that you're rejecting? And we just spent the last four weeks talking about one verse in the Bible that says these great things about this God. He's a loving God. He's a giving God who gave his own son who's changed his life for ours, that we could have life, full and abundant today, having a sense of purpose and meaning and significance and joy and peace and forgiveness today and hope for a better day, for life forever. Do you know this God that you are rejecting? Because I believe there's some truth in Dawkins' title, The God Delusion. I think there's some views about who God is that truly are deluded. And so I'd give you this challenge. I'd ask you to to concede that Jesus claimed to be God. The religious leaders killed him because he claimed to be God. He came, the Bible says, to show us what the invisible God is like. And I would just say, take the challenge. Take the gospel challenge, the book of Mark, the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. You don't own a Bible, grab one from one of the seat racks in front of you. Take it home this week. It won't take you more than an hour. Read through, find out who this Jesus is. Is he God? Is this at all square with this God that you've rejected? And here's another thing I do. It reminds me of the guy, I don't think we got his name, the guy that was saying, man, I just can't believe in God. Something would have to happen to me. Remember what he said? Something would have to happen to me. Something would have to prove it. And so here's my challenge to you. Ask God for something to happen to you that proves that he exists. Tim Keller tells this great story about a woman in his church. And this woman said, for years, I I was praying, God, help me to find you. And she was sharing her struggles and she wasn't finding God. And maybe that's how you feel. I've been looking, but I haven't found God. And, And then her friend wisely said, why don't you just turn the question a little bit? God, find me, find me. And she said he did. There's a couple of verses I want to leave you with. One in Jeremiah, the prophet writes this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I think what Jeremiah is speaking to, what it means to seek God with all your heart is to say, God, I'm open 
to the possibility that you exist and I'm going to seek after you, but I'm also open to the implications of what that might mean for my life. That I've got to surrender being God in my life and now live my life accordingly. I think that's what Jeremiah is talking about. So if you're on that adventure seeking God, Jeremiah says, seek him with your whole heart. Some of you say, well, that's not where I'm at. Well, then listen to this verse. This is is amazing. This is God speaking here in Isaiah 65. Here's what God says. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. What I'm asking you to do this week is to say, God, if you're out there, if you're real, do one of those here am I's to me. Do something so that I know you exist. Let's pray. And God, I know that you can do that. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would give somebody who has been very convinced in their atheism to be open to the possibility. I pray for that one who's just not sure that you'd move him to the point of just wanting to look into your word and seeing who this Jesus is who claimed to be the Son of God. And I pray that you would grant faith. I pray that you would strengthen faith. I pray that you'd meet us wherever we are. And I thank you that you're a God who acts in a non-dependent way upon us so that you could break into our world even when we don't want you and say, surprise, here I am and I love you and I want to dramatically change your life in ways that will blow the categories of your mind and your heart. We pray that you would do that for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.